Hello, welcome to Biblioscola, a podcast where we discuss various biblical topics and try to give you a little bit of Sunday school for whatever day of the week you're listening to us on. Today, my co-host and I will return to the book of Genesis, chapter 6, where we'll look at the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of man. Please join us for our discussion. Join me, guys, as we begin this episode by reading Genesis 6, 1-13 again. This will be in the ESV. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The word of the Lord. Awesome, Matt. Well, thanks for reading that. I'm Pastor Adrian Essingman, pastor of Osmer Baptist Church. And and I am Matt, and I'm the pastor of Prattsburg Baptist Church. And we're here to talk to you about things from the Bible. And we've kind of had an emphasis on judgment, although that's not all we've been talking about. And last podcast, we were talking about the flood. And we didn't quite get done with the material. Today, we're going to uh, to get into Genesis 6, 1 through 4 specifically. Maybe we'll get beyond that. I, I doubt it. But that's fine. Um, real quick. So one thing Matt has brought out on former podcasts, and I would really challenge you to listen to it. It's quite excellent. He was bringing out the sin of murder that Cain committed. Then he brought out Lamech, um, how that uh, the increase there of this theme and then finally, he brought out how in Genesis 6, we have violence just over flooding the earth. Uh, no pun intended there with the flood thing. And then in Genesis 9, I brought out that um, you have God's remedy, uh, not a permanent remedy, but a temporal band-aid in a fallen world for violence and what to do about it. Today, One thing we kind of skirted last week is what did happen in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And now Matt and I share the same view pretty much on this. 
Uh, and so what's going to happen is Matt's going to share our view with you. He's really good. He's got some great material. You're going to love it. Uh, I will, of course, interject the points. But before he does, there's been something on my heart and mind. I just want to kind of share as a preference to him, pre- preference, <laughs> preface to him doing that. I've got some thoughts on judgment as Matt and I've been talking. It's been the Lord's been showing this more and more. I've been noticing in the Bible, often God will use areas people are resisting him in to destroy them. Now, Matt pointed out last week that we see a flashpoint with violence uh, with the pre-flood man. And, you know, I've kind of brought that out a little bit, but just to reemphasize that. Now, they might have been they might have been dealing with other sins like stealing, sexual immorality, blasphemy, idolatry, lying, so on. And let me be honest with you, they had to have been, right? But they don't mention any of that. It's not that it wasn't happening, it's not the focus God has. Matt and I, before the broadcast, were talking about historical genre. Matt, before I go any farther, why yeah. don't you take a second? And what do I mean as a Bible teacher when I use the term, especially in the Old Testament, historical genre? What am I saying? Well, I think it's important to realize as we talk about genre in the Bible is the fact that uh, there are different ways in which the Holy Spirit inspired people to write. And so we would speak, uh, for instance, the book of Psalms being in a, a Hebrew Hebrew poetry genre, or uh, and, and so we all know what poetry is. Um, and with some of the other books, such as uh, Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, those are wisdom texts. So they're 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 stuff that speaks about wisdom. But when we speak, I think of most of the Old Testament texts. Maybe I shouldn't say most, but at least half. Uh, they're what we would call historical books. They're, they're written in a narrative form. So, th- so they're written as stories, but they're not viewed as fiction. They're nonfiction. They're, they, they're, they were considered real events um, written uh, depending on who the writer was. So for the first five books, Moses, uh, but ultimately inspired by the Holy Spirit. Matt, let me just interrupt you for one second. Mm-hmm. So you understand, Matt, and my position on this. So when you read Genesis 1 and you read God created the earth in seven days, what Matt and I are saying is that is not an allegory um, for what – that that's a literal historical event, that that actually happened. When we read about the flood, Matt and I are not suggesting that that is some kind of a representation of a localized flood or some kind of proverb for us to learn from. We're saying there was actually an historical event called the flood. Tower of Babel, same thing. We're saying that language was changed at the Tower of Babel. So when he says, we mean we any historical past narrative, we take as absolute fact. Right. Um, and I think it's important to realize that for the most part, well, we have a language barrier because the Old Testament was originally in, in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. For the most part, you really don't, if you were reading in the original language, and I think in most modern, trans, most translations, you get a sense of what was, what is allegorical, what is not to be taken literal, and what is to be taken literal. I don't I think absolutely the Bible, agree, by the way. I, sorry, yeah. I absolutely agree with you. That You're absolutely right. Um. I just think sometimes we, we, we as modern readers, because we're used to the way we tell stories, e- even real stories, 
that we don't always fully appreciate that um, we, we, we sometimes try to look for uh, pictures or, or, or symbols where there's not per se that in the text. Yeah, and I would even say one thing Matt and I were talking about earlier is, so the Bible tends to be very sparse in historical uh, genre detail. I think it's that way on purpose. Um, so, like, we're not often given a description of different characters, but when we are, it's important to the narrative. We're to pay attention. And so any details we are given, they're not just given, like, I, Matt and I like to write fiction. Uh, so when you write a fiction, like, so you're reading a book, you pick up one of my books, you start reading. I might say that the man was standing next to a babbling brook. I, that's not very good, but whatever, you know, and the wind was blowing across his face. He was a rugged, handsome man, whatever. My point is, I'm describing, the Bible is not interested in that. Every detail, every word is dripping with meaning from Almighty God. Now, Matt's right. You got to be careful not to get too esoteric about it or like too out there about it. But any details we are given, uh, we need to take very seriously and think about very hard because they're not just there for the fun of it. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is not just some random verbiage on a page. It is uh, things that God wants you to know. And, and I think that's important is all of Scripture is equally uh, there for a reason. That that includes passages that might be a little hard for us to understand, like Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Passages that are a bit boring, like the genealogies in, in Genesis or Ezra, or even the number listings that you get of so-and-so tribe had this number and that number. Those all have a reason that they were included. We might not fully understand that upon an initial reading. It might take a little bit of study, but it remains as valid a piece of scripture as anything you find in the book of Romans. Yes, yes, absolutely. And sometimes I think that does get lost. Uh, some people, uh, I don't know, I've, I've heard that people accuse Baptist churches sometimes of being Pauline epistle heavy, pistol, not Pauline epistle, Pauline epistle heavy. I don't know that that's actually fair. Growing up, my pastors seemed to feel free to preach out of the Old Testament too. Uh, so I don't know that that's exactly accurate, but he's right. Sometimes when I've made a point out of the Old Testament, someone inevitably will say, well, that's just the Old Testament. I'm like, well, okay. You know, I understand there might be some differences here, but that doesn't necessarily negate what it's saying. <laughs> you know, it's this whole right. scripture, all scripture, like Matt was saying, it's all given by God. You don't just get to pick and choose what you like and what you don't like, you know. Yeah. It, because remember, at the end of the day, Whatever Jesus or Paul or, or Peter, for the, anyone in the New Testament says, this is the word of the Lord, this is what scripture has to say, they only had the Old Testament at that point. Okay, I mean, I'm going to... Oh, go on, sorry. P Peter does kind of make a mention of Paul's writings are important, uh, but Peter's writing at the end of that period. You um, know, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I'm glad, actually, I listened, heard you out there. And then you know, I was just going to tell you really yeah. quick, I just logged off of Facebook. I know we were going to communicate during the broadcast, but I've got other notifications coming in. And I'm like, some people are here listening to that. I don't know if you heard the my ding, but I thought, yeah, so we don't hear that all yeah. day. Um, so just to let you know, um, I'll check it periodically to see if you've said anything to me. But um, no, I think that's a good point. I don't think, now, Matt, you read the church. I, I want to get back to the judgment thing, but I think this is important. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people know this. You've read the church fathers a lot. I have read them some. I know this is an area the Lord has really 
you really, when I have a question about church fathers and stuff, I, I definitely, you're one of the people I go to. And mm-hmm. so you've read them. What I have noticed, especially from the earlier ones, and you can correct me, I'm not an expert. I haven't, certainly not as well read as you are. They seem to be like incredibly Old Testament scripture heavy. Would you agree with that? I I, I, I think I would. Um, and that's not to say that they weren't using the New Testament, but I, I think you certainly see, um, and, and maybe the church goes into cycles like this, but you see periods where the Old Testament kind of drops out and then becomes important. But uh, with the church fathers, one of the things to really note is um, there comes a point where, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of his name offhand. Uh, it starts with an M and I'm just forgetting it. But anyways, this guy comes along and he says, well, I want to figure out what the, what, when we say what the word of God, what it is. And he um, went through and he removed anything that in his mind was too Jewish. And oh, so what you ended up, yeah. I mean, that was the whole Testament. I mean, realistically. It, 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 it was. It, it oh was, my gracious. He, so <laughs> basically what you ended up with. Is that um, when the father's talk. Yeah, I think that might be. Because it. I know he was a heretic. I don't. I don't yeah. well, I'm not an expert yeah. on him, but go ahead. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. That's who I'm thinking of. But, um, so what he did was basically removed. He removed the Old Testament. Uh, he had an edited version of Luke. Yikes. I guess to 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 his mind, and and I guess that kind of makes sense because we often uh, say that Luke was the uh, one Gentile writer of the. Uh, Bible, but um, so he has an edited version of Luke and a oh, I think it was seven letters of Paul. It, it's not the full what we call the Pauline uh, corpus, but it's it, it was an edited version. And he says, "Well, this is the Bible," and the church fathers are like, "Uh, no, there they, we can't throw out what what the apostles preached from," because I realized that in part. Uh, a lot of the Old Testament, you need that to fully understand when Christ makes re- when Matthew, for instance, makes references of Christ fulfilling prophecy. Um, when um, when Christ references things that the Old Testament informs us, and and it really gives us a more fuller picture of who God and and Jesus. Yes. Well, I'd even go a step farther. I think you'd agree. I almost think like it's foundational. I don't think you can understand the New mm-hmm. Testament without the foundation. It's like it's laying basic oh, information down, you know? Yeah. But and, and and I don't even think I had a professor in college and I very much agree with him. He said that a lot of people don't fully get Romans because they've never read Deuteronomy. That's a good point. Um, hey, and if you're out there listening to this and, and uh, listen, uh, he's right. Um, if you've never, I mean, if you've read through the New Testament, praise God. I'm not criticizing you. But really, too, the old, don't be afraid of the Old Testament. Don't be afraid of even numbers in Leviticus. I know that those books, people are like, oh, my gracious, the, they brought the one spoon and the three, <laughs> whatever. They're like, that goes on for 12 tribes. And they're like, uh, or the list of names. But I want to tell you something. There's a lot of good things, and really, that's all there for a reason. Like Matt said, that is not inferior scripture. That is there for a reason. But, Matt, I hate to hurry this discussion along, but we better get back to what our main topic oh, yeah. is. But anyway, but hopefully Matt and I have given you a 
brief view of uh, biblical interpretation here. So bottom line is back to the uh, the judgment thing. So, so I want you to know that remember that pre-flood, the only sin we seem to keep focusing on is violence. And Matt and I were talking earlier. I mean, it's hard to believe there wasn't idolatry. Uh, certainly there had to be theft and, uh, and blasphemy and all kinds of things going on, sexual morality. They're not really referenced. All we know is that man was totally corrupt and the earth was absolutely filled with violence. Why do I bring that up? Genesis 6, 1 through 4, seems to emphasize that God is allowing violence to increase even more. And you might be like, well, why would God do that? Well, I've noticed something um, in the in the Bible about uh, uh, about this. Let me give you an example. In Acts 7.22, the Bible says Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And that's, again, Acts 7.22 in the NIV translation. Uh, so uh, Egypt was kind of known for their wisdom. They were kind of a world power at one time. Woe to them. This is uh, Deuteronomy 17.16. Woe to them who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. I'm sorry, that's Isaiah 31.1. Apologize. And I be and then uh, Deuteronomy 17.16 tells the kings, uh, do not acquire great numbers of horses or return to Egypt to go get them. Here's my point. Uh, so Egypt was a picture of military might and wisdom in the Old Testament. And in Jeremiah's time and other times, people would kind of lean on them. They would, instead of trusting in God, they would go to the world for help, either to grab horses or power or status or whatever. And you know what? God finally judges Egypt in Isaiah uh, chapter 19, verse 14. The Bible says, the Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. Again, this is NIV. Um, that uh, they make Egypt stagger in all she does as a drunkard staggers around in his vomit. Said, so, well, why do you bring that up? Well, here's my point. It's almost like the area you're resisting God the most in. I believe pre-flood that was violence. Uh, here, it would be their wisdom and power. And God says, do you know what? You, you trust so much in this, these these people and their power and stuff. I'm going to make them extremely wishy-washy and indecisive, like a drunk person rolling around in their vomit. Pretty graphic picture. A uh, person just out of their mind and clueless. There is nothing worse. Than someone who is uber powerful, uh, who can't make up their mind and is constantly changing what they think. <laughs> like, just pick a team and stick with it, man. What are, what are we saying here? You know, um, one other example before I let Matt dive in, and he can interrupt me if he wants on this, is another time uh, you got a guy named Abimelech in Judges. And Abimelech goes to his brothers and he's like, hey, He's like, why Why should we all be in charge? Why, why not just let me run things? And they're like, yeah, that's a good idea. So in verse 3, they go to the town of Shechem, and they say, hey, why don't we just make Abimelech our king? Shechem's like, okay. They give him like 70 pieces, shekels of silver. Abimelech goes out and hires scoundrels or followers, and he proceeds to kill all his brothers. <laughs> One survives. And he chides not really Abimelech. He chides the city of Shechem. And what's interesting is the city of Shechem doesn't say to Abimelech, uh, so when we empowered you to be our leader, we didn't anticipate you murdering 69 <laughs> of Gideon's sons. Uh, you, you're not our king anymore. No, for three years, everything's fine. And then the Bible says this, and watch very carefully. So treachery is the sin here. It says, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. 
that the cruelty to the three score ten sons of Jeroboam uh, might come and their blood might be laid to Abimelech, their brother who slew them. And it goes on. But notice it says, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech. Now I realize NIV, that's actually King's English, says something different. But I, I really think King James is right here. My point is the sin was treachery. So God's like, oh, you like the sin of treachery, huh? Well, let's, uh, you like that so much? Let's uh, let's enhance the sin of treachery. How about uh, you both go after each other? And it's amazing. There's this blowhard guy, and Matt knows it blows up into this huge conflagulation where I mean, just, all these people are getting murdered. Abimelech dies. <laughs> it's just like crazy. It all comes from a guy just kind of shooting his mouth off while he's drunk. And it blows into this huge yeah. thing. Um, and again, so... It, it, just to wrap up, what I am saying is watch in the Bible. Sometimes when God wants to judge a civilization or a culture that is actively resisting his will, sometimes he will allow them and enable them to go even farther in the sin path that they are on. He's like, oh, you like that sin? Well, let's go even farther along that line to either make you repent, I believe, or to ultimately have it destroy you. Yeah. and. I think that's uh, very, very clearly seen in part through one of the things that God does with the exile. The, the people of Israel are so concerned with idolatry, God exiles them right into the middle of a country where they can have all the idols. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That is so true. Yeah. And they can't even go to the temple. <laughs> it's like that. It's yeah. totally closed down. Yeah. No, Matt, that is that that is a fantastic point. Now, Matt's about to explain to you, well, our 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 view using scripture of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Before he gets into that, let me boil down both views we're going to share to you in a very simple, like average guy kind of term. If you're into comics at all, Matt and I are in these days, comic book movies are huge. There are two pretty famous characters, Batman and Superman. I, I imagine you've heard of them. Batman is a guy who went through a traumatic experience and trains himself to a razor's edge and can go out and beat up criminals constantly, taking on enormous numbers of people by himself because he's so highly trained and motivated and smart. Superman is a guy who was born with an incredible amounts of power, and he chooses to use it for good. Why do you bring that up, Pastor Adrian? Well, Believe it or not, the two theological views of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 have many variations, but they can be boiled down to either highly trained, skilled individuals who have been probably training for like hundreds and hundreds of years or something very supernatural that happened. And Matt is going to get into a more supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Yeah, Um I think it is important that ultimately what we have are, are two different views. There are variations, but it's a supernaturalistic view or a more human view. Um, but I'm going to go with the supernaturalistic view. And that uh, way, I, I forgot I, to say one thing. And I'll shut up yeah. and let you talk for a little bit. Sorry about that. And, and the one thing between both views that are the same, though, both views emphasize violence ratcheting up through these first four verses. Both views, yes. neither view disagrees about that. Go ahead, Matt. I, you know, th that's important. I think before we go any further in the text, that at the end of the day, you can interpret this as, as a supernaturalistic thing, as a, a human thing. 
and whatever many view outside of that, but you can still understand this text. It is the fact that something wrong is going on, that the the Giborim, the heroes of old, the men of renown, are being praised where they should not be praised. Yeah, it, praised for being um, ultra-violent, correct? For what we can see? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and if we have time, we'll talk about why we think that that's a part of the text. Um, but I really think it, it is important that you don't need to... If you want to say, okay, I don't know where I fall on the line of who the sons of God are, you can still understand the text and you can still be blessed by it. Um, that ultimately, this is not a text that affects your salvation. No, I mean, yeah, Matt and I are going to bet our salvation on this. And I want you to know, too, Matt is going to take you into the New Testament, too, to look at some very important verses that tie into this. And I think there's profit in scripture, even if you end up disagreeing with Matt and I, in searching scripture and really thinking about it. Because the Bible does talk about this event more than just these verses. One last thing about these violent men. I know we're going to talk about it later. But so when I say hero, now this is changing in the United States. But it used to be if I said a hero, you would think of someone morally upright. But in Greek mythology... A hero is, I mean, they can be morally upright, but basically it's more referring to their combat skill or prowess and strength. It's not really referring to their moral character. And I think that's actually kind of an important yeah. way to look at this, that they, these men of renown are, are, are more admired for their ability to kill people or, or really hurt people. Right. Go ahead. And that's important. I, I The King James, I think, uses heroes yes. of old, right? Oh, no, but, I'm, but sorry. Men of no, I'm sorry. Men of renown is King James. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that right away. It, it, it doesn't use these were the heroes of old, let's the see, men of see, renown. Uh, I'm going to read it to you real quick. Um, these okay. are the giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God, and that's what Matt was talking about a few minutes ago, came into the daughters of men. And he's going to get into, well, what could that mean? And they bear children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Okay. Um, anyways, that mighty men is sometimes translated hero, but mighty men's a better translation because again, it's about um, it's about their skills. It's not about their character. Amen. Um, so, anyways, uh, why don't we actually uh, try and understand a little bit what's going on with this passage? And so, the first <coughs> thing we really have to ask ask and answer is the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of men. And so I'm going to focus on the uh, supernaturalistic view and, and Adrian's going to deal with the other view, but in the supernaturalistic view, uh, the idea is that the sons of God are angels or, or perhaps more precisely fallen angels. And the daughters of men are simply that daughters of humans, uh, the Hebrew phrase there is ha adam, and so it's emphasizing that they're daughters of Adam. So, Matt, if I could just clarify angels, one thing you said, yes. and, and again, I'm not trying to take yeah. over here, but just um, so when Matt says fallen angels, there are two views of that one that these are demons that fell with Lucifer who became Satan, the other that these were mm -hmm. uh, angels that saw these women and fell uh, in sexual sin with them. So those are the two, those yeah. are the two main and, and, views. And, 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 <clears throat> right. 
And, 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 and that is important is the question is, is uh, if these are angels, did they fall at this time or did they fall previously? And this is, as some commentators say, a further fall. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't know where I, I personally come on that view, but both of those are valid. I yeah, I think that's a great um, point, Matt. One thing you as a listener have to understand, Matt and I hold this view, but we don't totally understand it. In other words, we're going to present scriptural reasons why we hold this view, why we think something happened here, like what Matt's describing. But we're not arrogant enough to say, yep, and here's exactly what happened. No, we're, we're just like, hey, we see in scripture that something happened here, and this is why we see that and what the ramifications are. But that doesn't mean we understand every little doodad or detail. Right. Um, all right. So why don't we go ahead and I'm going to look at that first part, sons of God. What is one of the reasons that we would say this is an angel thing and not just some some way to interpret this any other way? Well, the first and major reason is if you guys are bored, you could turn to the book of Job and in the beginning of Job, uh, we're, we're in the first chapter, you're first told about uh, Job and what an awesome guy he is. And then when you get to verse 6 of chapter 1, so this is Job 6, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, we read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And so... Uh, and then the rest of the, that passage talks about how Satan and God talk about who Job is, and Satan tries to say that Job's not as good as God thinks, and we, we kind of know the story. Well, actually, um, I wouldn't assume people do, but listen, listen, oh, Matt, but this is a very interesting story. Matt won't have much time to get into it, but if you do not know this story, I'd really challenge you, um, take a minute over this weekend and really read it. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in the beginning of chapter two, we read the same thing. So, so Satan uh, tries to prove that Job's not as good as he is, and he fails. And then in chapter two, we read, again, there was a day when the sons of God came, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And they have another conversation concerning Job. Um, and what we see here is in both of those instances, um, there, I, I don't know of anyone that argues otherwise, because it just doesn't make sense from the text that the sons of God, um, are angels. They're presenting themselves before God within the heavenly courts and Satan is among those angels. Um, it, it would appear, uh, that for whatever reason, uh, and we get this from other passages in scripture that, that angels are given task. And so God evidently likes to hear what they have. Well, and not only that, wait, Matt, if but I could we, just, not mm-hmm. only that, but if, yeah. if sometimes when, when you look at scripture, uh, you find out that even demons, not just Satan are in the court of heaven. I'll, I'll give you one example from, uh, let's see, this is uh first Kings 22, <clears throat> excuse me. And it says, um, it says, uh, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, 
who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner and another on that manner. And there came forth the spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. And he, that would be God, said, thou shalt persuade him and prevail. Also go forth and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these thy prophets. So, yeah, when he's talking about God consults with people, angels, demons, Satan, uh, in the court of heaven, uh, all these entities uh, are uh, can meet with God and, and deal with them on a regular basis, apparently. Right. And, and we also see Satan appear in the courts of heaven in uh, Zechariah. Uh, well, and, and Revelation 12, but yes, Zechariah. Right, right. Um, well, I didn't reference Revelation 12 right away because some people interpret that different, uh, trying to see in that a past event. I think it's a future Okay, yeah, because we had talked so about that earlier. I assume that we, yeah, it was a, right, right. I, I understand Revelation is a tricky book, but I would say you and I would say that's definitely referring to the future anyway. Right, right. I was just, uh, I guess I was uh, wanting to propose, okay, here's a line of evidence that Satan's gotcha. in heaven, so that when I say in Revelation that's a future event, that's partly why, because we know um, Satan's been allowed, but at one point he's going to be totally barred, and 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 that's why he's so upset versus... So, uh, Revelation time. 12, but, but yes. 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 Um, and, and that, I don't want to get too much further. No, no, yeah, it's going to take us a whole no, yeah. uh, You're right. I'm, I'm getting this off topic. Go ahead. Um, that's okay, but not really. Anyways, my, my big point in, in this passage in Job is that the sons of God are clearly presented as angels. And so when we read in Job, the sons of God, uh, it, it, it just makes sense. Okay. These are angels, Satan's among them. And, and, and like I said, I don't know of anyone else that interprets it differently. Now, you might ask, why are they called sons of God? Why aren't they called angels? And it's probably a, for a similar reason that Luke calls Adam in, in the genealogy that Luke gives in his gospel, a son of God. And it's not that they're claiming any sort of divinity, but as angels have no real parents and God is the one that created them in a similar sense as God created Adam, that's why they're called sons, if that makes sense to you guys. Um, it is uh, speaking of God as their creator, and so in that real sense, as their father, even if it's not a biological sense. Um, so anyways, Job gives us one of the evidences, but you know, it's, it's never good to just look at one piece of scripture and say, okay, that that is our evidence. I think it's also very important to look uh, within the New Testament and specifically in two passages, Second uh, Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 and 7. Now, I'm going to read these slightly out of context, meaning you really should read all of Second Peter and Jude. But for time restraints, I'm just going to read the specific verses. Um, and if we have time, we'll probably reference more of them. But 2 Peter 2.4 says this. Um, 
For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but held them captive in Tartarus with chains of darkness and handed them over to be kept for judgment. Uh, by the way, I should say that I'm reading this out of the Lexham uh, translation. Um, and this is Jude 6 and 7. And the angels who did not keep their domain, but deserted their proper dwelling place, he kept in eternal bonds under deep gloom for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns around them indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in the same way as these are exhibited as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, these two New Testament uh, passages are very important because Peter and Jude are talking about the same thing. Um, they're talking about a, a set of angels who did something so bad that they are punished. Uh, Peter uses the term Tartarus. Most translations will probably use the word hell. And, and that's not a horrible translation, but Tartarus is better because it's not the typical word that uh, when we think of hell and eternal punishment that is used in the New Testament, that's the Greek word Gehenna. So these angels are placed in a separate place. They're chained in darkness. Um, and they're awaiting the final judgment, or as Jude says, the judgment of the great day. And whenever you read kind of the judgment of the great day or the great day or, or really a singular day, you should automatically jump to the Old Testament phrasing, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, which for um, within the New Testament, we also often uh, refer to that period as the tribulation period. If I could interrupt just for one second, I'm yeah. sure Matt's about to get into, I think you're probably going to hit Sodom and Gomorrah here in a second, right? Or no? All right. Mm -hmm. Well, just so you know, yeah. in Second yeah. Peter 2, and I know Matt knows this, I know why he read verse 4 for time constraints, but I think it's interesting to note in verse 6 of Second Peter, remember Jude, Matt read to you, that it, it literally does a comparison contrast with Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 6, it says, entered in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the ashes, condemned them with an ungodly, uh, sorry, an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that should live ungodly. Now, if that was just in Second Peter and not in Jude as well, I wouldn't really think much about that comparison. But the fact that twice Sodom and Gomorrah is directly linked in judgment with uh, in in Second Peter, they both got judged, and then in Jude it actually talks about what, well, at least I think, what they were doing, why they got judged. I think that's interesting. Both texts, that's the example we're going to compare them with. Yeah. Um, that, that really in both texts, there, there is a um, sexual immoralities involved Absolutely. in there. That there's a reason that they're, they're connected. Um, it's also very interesting that, uh, is it the... Sorry, I'm trying While to... While he's doing that, the uh, now at, Matt's going to talk about sexual morality here, and he's going to talk about these these uh, fallen angels or demons. And one thing, back in Bible college, 
I would get inevitably anyone heard even a whiff of this. They would say, oh, no, no. Biblically inaccurate. Jesus says angels are not married and given in marriage. By the way, Matt and I would totally agree with that text. I have no problem with that text whatsoever. Christ is absolutely right. Obviously, it's Christ. He's right. But my point is that doesn't necessarily negate this view. He's talking about angels that are elect or good angels. Um, you may say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, what we're saying is, yeah, good angels are perfect. They're, they don't do anything wrong. <laughs> it is not the intent uh, of God that angels uh, marry or have or do any of that stuff. And uh, But I'm not sure that rules out that fallen angels or angels that fall uh, are incapable of such things and, and cannot do that. Um, ergo, being evil, vile spirits. But go ahead. Uh, one of the ways to interpret the unnatural desire there is uh, going after strange flesh. And that might also better connect it with the Genesis passage that Jude himself was uh, in Jude 6 and 7, purposely leaving it vague and leaving it strange flesh because he's saying as similar as Sodom and Gomorrah sin is, there's that similarity in, in Genesis. Um, and if you uh, pay attention in the Genesis account of Sodom and Gomorrah, when it deals with that specific sexual immorality, it is also dealing with angels who had come to uh, get Lot and his family out of the and city. Matt is uh, you know, definitely talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. I know this is going to be really unpopular. We do not have time to talk about this much at all in the podcast here. So you're going to have to look at it yourself. But in the Bible, one of the sins brought out specifically about Sodom and Gomorrah was the sin of homosexuality. And uh, throughout the Bible, uh, when in the Old Testament, God wants to reference that particular sin, he'll literally sometimes call them sodomites. Um, and, and again, there are many sins in the Bible. I'm not picky on uh, the sin of homosexuality specifically, but I'd say I think that's important for the Jew text. I know it's extremely unpopular to even talk about these things today. There is a fear that, oh my gracious, you're going to offend somebody. Well, I understand that. Um, and there's many different kinds of sins in this world, but that's, I think that that particular sin is being referenced here because according to Romans one, God did not design us for that sin. And I think that's important to see that angels were not designed for this either. This was not God's intent when he designed them. Right. Um, and so anyways, both Peter and Jude really reference this idea of, of these angels who have done something that it's connected within the listing of sins with Sodom and Gomorrah, which is clearly a, a sin uh, involving uh, lust and, and, and sexual immorality. It's also important because, as I said, they're, they're punished. They're held captive. They're, they're held in, in whatever Tartarus is. Peter doesn't relate much of it. He probably uh, he uses the word for a reason, but he's not pulling it out of Greek mythology. It might just simply be that uh, he wanted them to have a sense of what he's talking about, that, that they're in a prison. And... Scripture in other places is very clear that demons are still roaming yeah, around. Yeah. I but, mean, for instance, uh, for, for instance, read any of the Gospels, and how many times does Jesus have to deal with someone that's demon Oh, Absolutely. And look, look at the New Testament Pauline epistles. We are warned about Satan's schemes. and Well, it seems unlikely 
Uh, the amount of times that, oh, and it says for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and the rulers of this dark world. Rulers mm-hmm. being plural, not singular. I know that John MacArthur makes a big deal, and I'm not criticizing this, for that each of those are a different level of authority. I, I don't know whether he's right about that or not, but clearly we're talking more than just Satan as an individual. And so you have to ask yourself, what did yeah. these angels do? Why are they singled out? They don't even participate, as far as I can see, in the tribulation period. They're done. You know, they're absolutely done. Right. Um. So I and and you have a few smattering of of other comments. First uh, Corinthians eleven ten is very interesting. In in speaking of women, have maybe wearing something on their head as a symbol. Uh, Paul connects it to the angels and the early church, particularly Tertullian links that to this episode in Genesis. Um, And so I think that as we say, we think this is the angel view. We're not just pulling one text out of scripture and saying it's because this sounds good, but there's a wide variety of texts right within the biblical literature that says the yeah, same if there was thing. some kind of union between unnatural union union between uh, uh you know uh angelic either fallen or unfallen and man you can imagine that would create something very superhuman and uh something that your average mm-hmm. i mean you look at just what samson was able to do alone you can imagine what about someone ungodly that just doesn't care about anyone you know uh, my gracious, how many right. people could they kill? <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, it, because I know some of you are going to say, you guys were saying that this whole passage is about violence and everything, but you're talking in Jude and Peter about uh, sexual immorality and how, how does that work? And I think it's important to realize that Genesis in, its, it, in that passage very much is focused on the violence, but that doesn't mean that the... Uh, sexual immorality is not Absolutely. a part of it. It's just that uh, Moses, when he's writing that, has a purpose there, whereas Jude and Peter are looking at a different purpose. But both of those texts, uh, all three, I guess I should say, are still dealing with the same ultimate topic of judgment. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think this would be a good um, point to bring in um, – uh, you know, I don't know how much more Matt and I can really say about other than these things were very powerful. And I'm sure Matt actually is probably going to talk about the daughters of men here in a second. Matt, I think it might be helpful, though, if I really quick went into uh, the sons of God from the other viewpoint really quick to give a break for a second. OK, so yep. really quick, I don't yep. hold this view, but I understand why some do. So some, if I can boil this down, they see this primarily as the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Not Abel, because Abel was killed. Um, And they see it as a corruption of the godly line. That's what they see it as. In other words, intermarrying between godly and ungodly people, creating just this wickedness that flooded the earth. That is a tempting uh, idea. Um, I'm going to save some of that for when Matt talks about the daughters of men, and they chose wives of all the... Uh, they were fair and wives of all they, I, but I just want to say the sons of God. So how do they explain these men of renown and mighty? And, and what they will say basically 
is that I, I've even heard about genetic breeding, like in other words, certain humans bred. I, I don't know if they went that far or not, but you have to imagine if you've got people living to 800 or 900 years old and they like a Batman kind of person devote themselves to combat. So you've got a person for 500 years trying to run around planet earth, uh, you know, uh, killing people. I imagine they get pretty good at it. Uh, and so and I said, well, what does it mean? They chose wives of all the, uh, all they, all they wanted if they're not like some supernatural entity or something like that. Well, it's very likely that they, if this viewpoint is correct, that they just killed the husbands. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just kind of took whatever they wanted. Um, again, I don't hold this view. Uh, the view isn't always about the line of Cain and the line of South, but generally that's the emphasis. And again, the idea is, is that God and his, um, his followers are greatly reduced from this watering down of the two lines. And there's reasons why Matt and I theologically wonder about that. But I'm going to wait till Matt talks about the daughters of men to get into why that might be a little suspect. Go ahead, Matt. All right. So the second thing is if we, we identify the sons of God with angels, well, what are the daughters of men? And I think one of the things to realize is that sometimes, and, and we talked about this uh, uh, at some point, is that it's okay to just let Scripture say exactly what it means. And so if you read it just plainly, you read daughters of men or daughters of humans. Um, it, it does, in one sense, specify daughters of Ha-Adam, and so... It's not using one of the other Hebrew words for humanity. It's specifically linking them to uh, descendants of Adam, the first man. Um, and so I think uh, really just a, a basic reading, and, and this really works well with the angelic view because you don't have to jump through any hoops in interpretation. You can just simply read it. Oh, these are humans. It, it is clear that they're female humans because they're called daughters. And, and I think that's also kind of another important thing is that the writer here is being very specific, sons of God uh, and daughters of men, that he's he's uh, making clear the gender. Yeah, of actually, it's really important. Groups. Matt was sharing in his higher education that there's an, a you know, growing discomfort with gender, but in the Bible, Michael, the archangel, Gabriel, we, it really does seem that angels are primarily or exclusively male and gender. I would almost say exclusively the only, and we're not going to get into this today. Don't panic listener. The only female angel mentioned in the Bible where you could, if, if it is what is referencing and Zachariah, there are some females that certainly seem to be angels, whether it's a vision uh, is in a vision text. Like Matt says, you look at the text and you look at what's going on. So are these real female angels or are these just concepts? Don't know. But they take uh, this lead-lined basket to Babylon. But that's the only reference to female angels in the Bible. Their angels are constantly called the sons of God. Doesn't necessarily negate female angels, but uh, they don't get married. Um, you know, I, it, it appears that maybe angels are exclusively male. And in this case, it would certainly make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. So, uh, 
that's the major thing with the angelic view of who the daughters of men are. And so I can give you the other options, but I'm actually going to have Adrian do that um, just so that because he's kind of. Yeah, and Matt, if I miss anything, people. please jump in and say, Adrian, let, let me just further emphasize. But all right. So the daughters yeah. of men. So they primarily want that to be the line of Seth representing godly people who are intermarried. Oh, yeah, please go ahead. Wait, 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 wait. You said the daughters of men is Seth? The descendants, female descendants of Seth. Oh, really? I've always heard the sons of God as the descendants of Seth. Oh, and the daughters you know of what, Matt? I'm tired. Thank you. No, you're absolutely right. I don't know what I was thinking. No, no, you're right. Okay. I'm wrong. He's right. So the godly uh, sons of God uh, marrying the ungodly daughters of men. Um, one thing that Matt was pointing out before the broadcast is, I mean, certainly, well, let me just say first that, so people get confused about the Jewishness of the Old Testament and God's prohibition on intermarrying. They think it, sometimes it has a racial component to it, but it's pretty clear it doesn't. When Ruth the Moabitess becomes part of the line of Christ, when Rahab the harlot becomes part of the line of Christ, even Uriah the Hittite, realize he's male, uh, was a, a valued member of the Lord's uh, the Lord's people. Uh, even Naaman is it seen it seen well I don't want to get to that can of worms so let's not let's not open that up so bottom line is that um uh so if now certainly one of the big themes of scripture is the fact of godly men uh marrying people that don't care about the Lord and there being ramifications like numbers 25 realize it's not marriage but it's still sexual immorality uh Ezra and Nehemiah both reference this sin uh Ezra is shocked. Uh, in Nehemiah, um, ungodliness spreads to the point where the men that marry women that don't love God, their children can't even speak Hebrew, which means they can't even read the Bible. Um, and Nehemiah really takes them to task for that. Well, the New Testament is a passage about being unequally yoked. Matt mentioned that the Bible loves to build on what it's already told you. So as we've shown you in Jude and Second Peter, which primarily is dealing with false teaching, and one thing false teachers are synonymous with is sexual morality. <laughs> it's one of the, the hallmarks of them. Not, not all, but one thing that is specifically linked to them uh, in a general sense. And yet in this passage about being unequally yoked uh, and stuff like that, uh, Paul doesn't reference that at all. And you think that that would be the definitive passage on how this could, you know, marrying someone that doesn't love the Lord can totally ruin uh, the faith. Um so uh, anyway, um, but but that is that is why people that do not hold that my view say, oh, so this is a perfect picture. It's a constant problem in the Old Testament. It is a problem in the Old Testament. I'll give you that. And uh, so here it is. And um, but you know, so I can see the fair part. In other words, they're not choosing them based on their godliness. They're choosing them just primarily on their looks. But uh, Matt, why don't you get into um, what you and I would say about this passage? Um, okay, hang on. Oh, dear. I yeah, I know. We probably better wrap this up. You're right. So, um, no, no. It, it, it's So I'm going to skip well, some actually, of the things you know I was going to talk For about. For the sake of time, um, why don't we focus in on... For it says, and they bear children to them. They became mighty men, men of renown. 
you know, I think it'd be important to note okay, yes. if this is just about the merger of the line of Seth and the line of Cain, how come we have these superhumans being birthed by this ungodly? I mean, that doesn't, in mm -hmm. my mind, that doesn't make any sense. Just because I fall, I, I married a woman that loves the Lord. Great. I love my wife, Gail. I hope I'm always faithful to her. She is awesome. My point is, though, let's say I disobeyed the Lord and married someone that doesn't care about God or is as worships a different God. So I marry them. I marry them primarily for their looks like this passage or whatever. I say, oh, I really like this person. I marry him. Uh, I don't know that necessarily our children automatically become Batman. <laughs> you know, like, they, okay, because of that union, uh, right, your kids right. are going to, you know, just be like machines of death. I, I don't understand mm -hmm. that link there. Right. So I think it is, a, it is important to realize that uh, this very much is one connected passage. The English Standard Version, I think most uh, translations uh, include this all in one paragraph. Um, and so what we, we read that the sons of God comes in, that they, that they get married, that God makes this pronouncement in verse 3 of 120 years. And, and that's a fun thing that we'll have yeah, we're to, definitely gonna tackle that next so we do we, not we want to get really right probably um but then we read okay so all of this happens and we read the nephilim or the giants were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of god came in the daughter came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them these were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown so all of this is connected and so the first thing is well what in the world are the Nephilim? And that's kind of a, a very loaded question because it's even hard to translate the word. Uh, Nephilim, and uh, the spelling is N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M. We're actually not translating when we use that word. We're using a terminology called transliterating. And all that means is we're taking the Hebrew letters kind of like and making angel, them English right? Letters. Well, that'd be Greek, but still. Yeah, but yeah, it's the Angelos. same exact thing as angel yeah. is, is, yeah. And so, yeah, baptism, or, right. Uh, baptism, transliteration, uh, baptized. Yep. Um, right. And, 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 and sometimes that's an, that's a good way to translate <laughs> something because what you're saying is, I don't know what this is. You, you typically won't translate right. a name, right? You you want to leave a name as close to what it is. You're not going to translate, um, for for instance, um, Michael, who is like God. It would be a translation. You're going to leave it as Michael. Um, and, and so, uh, one of the reasons we some translations use giant is that's what. Uh, the Greek Septuagint says that's a translation. Um, and so the, the Septuagint translators were translating the Old Testament before the New Testament came out. And so they were, they were still around when Hebrew was a spoken language. And so the argument is they had a better idea of how that would have been translated than we over 2,000 plus years And now, the reason Matt's bringing this up, idea. the counter view will tell you that it's not really giant or, or things like that, but it's not talking about stature. They'll say it's just talking about their combat prowess and stuff. And I think that Matt's point is well right. taken. I, I, I don't really think that that's why they translated it like that, but go ahead. 
Like, in other words, it was just combat prowess. Why translate um, it Nephilim? <laughs> you know, that doesn't seem to make any sense. Right. Um, now, so when we try to say, okay, well, what does Nephilim mean? And the other word that's important in this passage is the Hebrew word, uh, Wait, can I say one more thing about Nephilim man. really quick? Um, There's, and correct me yes, if I'm wrong, yeah. Matt, there's only one other place in scripture that word is used. Is that correct? Maybe I'm wrong. I yep. believe. Is it, no, it I think you're right. Numbers Just in, 13, 33. In, uh, and there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, yeah. uh, which come of the giants, very important. And we were of our own size grasshoppers. Now, I've had people argue that this is, that they actually saw Nephilim. Um, I don't personally believe that uh, that would be, and I'm not putting them down. Uh, Pentecostal brothers also hold this view and they go maybe a little farther than I would with this view. That doesn't mean that they're wrong and I'm right. Okay. I respectfully say, well, I see what you're saying, but, but what I think is happening here specifically is they're exaggerating. They are scared out of their minds. <laughs> they are trying mm -hmm. to get people not to go on the land. And it's at the very end and they're building up and building up. And finally they're like, and you know what? These people, they're like descended from the Nephilim. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, like these scary supernatural being pre-flood beings. These people mm -hmm. are like that. It's like, it's like the ultimate, it's like, and we right. saw Superman there. You, you know, it's like, oh, I mean, Superman's a bad term because Superman's someone we view as a, a very moral person. But how about just this? This creature, this this mm -hmm. scary boogeyman, we saw him there. And we go there, they're, we're going to get killed. Because it's one thing to go fight flesh and blood enemies. It's another right. thing to go fight the Nephilim. Go ahead. Right. Um, now, when we speak of Nephilim, uh, what we think the translation should be is something like fallen once. Uh, uh, that the Nephilim, uh, Nephal is a Hebrew word that means to fall. And then the M part of that would be the, this is a person. So uh, a translation is uh, the fallen ones or, or another translation would be those who fall on others. And I prefer that translation. The, the first one of fallen ones, we, we kind of think, Oh, well, this means um, that these are the angels. And, and I don't think that's what the text is saying because it's been pretty clear calling the angels sons of God. But if we read them as the ones who fall upon others, that's a, that's a term for violence. It, it's the idea of, of someone coming down a road and the thieves fell upon them. They ambushed them. And I think that fits better with what Moses is talking about here with the increase in violence is the sons of God have these children with the daughter of men and even their name is a name that yeah, these guys would be violent. If, if that's what happened. And I certainly believe it did. These people would be unstoppable to, for mortal people. I mean, they would be, well, I'm, I'm sure they can mm -hmm. be killed, but I'm just saying it would be extremely difficult. These things, and who knows how even tall these things were. Right. I mean, I think the idea here is they could do whatever they wanted to do. You know, they you could not stop them. Think right. about it. So how many times in, in, in superhero genre do we see an ultimately powerful character? If he's not faced by someone different of his power level, the military is hopelessly outgunned when Hulk comes along or th there's not much they can do because their guns don't do anything to him. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's like a joke, 
Like, oh, okay, we're going to try to stop. Well, how are you going to stop them? Right. And I think that's what we're seeing here. How are you going to stop these things? Yeah. Um, and 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 so they're a terrible thing. Um, we're 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 then given the description that they're the mighty men. This is the Hebrew word gibberim. Gibberim is not always used of wicked people. Uh, so, for instance, uh, David in the uh, end of of oh Samuel uh, has a listing of his mighty men. And it's the same Hebrew word there. Um, and so it describes people that are very skilled in arms who have done uh, hugely important uh, deeds. And oftentimes they're linked to military and violent deeds. And so if you look, for instance, at the Second uh, Samuel near the end of that, and it talks about David's mighty men. You're reading things like these guys are able to take down giants. They're able to uh, fight lions barehanded. Um, one of them, Benaiah, is able to take out uh, two uh, Moabite uh, champions without a problem. And so it really refers to some uh, important uh, warriors. Now, uh, one of the other things that I should hey, mention hey, Matt, real not quick to interrupt your is, thought. Just check your Facebook. Now, one real of quick the answers. Going. Yeah. Okay. Got. It. Yeah, I, I, I checked it. Um. So one of the other things to uh, realize about the Nephilim is the one answer Adrian gave is a really good answer, and I think no matter what, that's a part of the passage. That what you have in part is, is the Israelites. Um, being really afraid and maybe linking it to this, to in their timeline, kind of the mythic past. And so they, they've really exaggerated what these Canaanites are. Now, another view, and, and we really don't have too much time to delve into it. So if this is something you guys want more questions on, please leave a comment, is the idea that perhaps Nephilim isn't the the name of the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men, it's just another term. And so it's a term that describes a ferocious warrior, a ferocious giant. And so, yeah, there were Nephilim back here, but when Genesis says, and also afterwards, it's just saying that there was another group, not, not from a union of, of angels and uh, people, but just another ferocious group of people uh, during the time of of the conquest of the land, the the coming into the land. Um, some people think that it might just be a term for wickedness, and so the first term Nephilim in describing this union that uh, Moses was saying these guys were very wicked, and then the second term of using gibberim is saying that these guys were mighty warriors. And so you get wicked, violent warriors. And so then we get to the last term uh, that comes back, that, that we, we uh, come to, and that's the men of renown. And the men of renown is literally the men of the name. That, that would be a very literal translation. And most translators uh, think that when it says of the name that this is for reputation and renown 
And I think that makes the most sense. You might have a minority view. I at least saw it in one commentary that wanted to take the name as referring to Hashem, which is in rabbinic Judaism, how they refer to God. But that's so much later in tradition that I, I don't see Moses and uh, his original readers making that same connection. When they referred to Yahweh, they referred to him as Yahweh. They didn't have, they didn't see the need to use the euphemism. Hey, Matt, I tell you what, we, we're, we're hitting about an hour and so 10 I think right it's much, now. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, I'll bring this home. Would that be okay? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So basically look, yeah. Matt and I weren't trying to, we're not trying to sway you one way or the other. We're presenting biblical information. Hopefully we bless you, but let's focus. So right after one through four, which again, Matt and I, and we'll tell you all the other major viewpoints. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that definitively, but seem to also hold the, the view that violence is the key here. In verse five, it says the wickedness of man is great. Every imagination is evil continually. It grieves him. He finds that Noah is just. And then in 13, he says, the earth is filled with violence. I will destroy it. Um, so again, these people are already, it appears, struggling with this sin issue. And God uh, God allowed this great evil to happen. Uh, and one reason we think, and maybe you've already mentioned this, and I've forgotten. We've talked about a lot of different things today. and We've talked before this, but... That these that we think that's one reason these angels were locked away permanently is that God was also saying this is not going to happen again. Um, and well, I will right. get into another time possible things that might happen in the tribulation period, but that is way out of scope for what we're talking about here. So basically, again, we see that man, a lot of people today are like, Well, you know, Pastor Adrian, and, and again, I'm not saying that COVID 19 that I'm a prophet and that COVID 19 is a judgment. And I know that Matt was, was probably more reticent to say that than I am. And that's not a criticism against him. But I am saying one thing you have to realize biblically about judgment is that God is able to judge us. And one thing in modern society is that is really an unpopular point of view. <laughs> People do not want to think that God is. And I want to tell you something, the tribulation period, things are going to happen, make COVID-19 look like a, a, a little picnic. And they're all direct judgments in <laughs> Revelation. And it's all related to people unrepentant of their sins and God bringing judgment and more judgment upon them and even harsher judgment. So once again, we see that mankind is resisting God and that God brings judgment by increasing their evil so that they will come to a state of judgment. In other words, you, you don't want to follow me. Fine. Uh, just go down this path you've taken. Um, and, uh, and finally God just ends the whole thing uh, spares Noah. But um, so I guess the take home for you, my dear reader, is you might not have the Nephilim living down the street. Uh, you know, you may not be in pre-flood conditions, but where are you at with the Lord right now? Judgment is something the Bible talks about. Now, even if you don't get a major judgment in this life, um, there is always uh, eternity where we will be judged. Believers, we will be called to account. Uh, non-believers without Christ's blood, uh, you will be found unworthy and go to hell because uh, your sin problem has to be addressed. That's another story for another time. Um, but uh, I would challenge you to accept Christ as your only substitute for sin. God hates sin. You might say, well, I don't think it's that big a deal. Yeah, well, your, in my opinion, doesn't matter. God hates sin. 
And he is a moral, he's our creator. He has every right to judge us. He has the authority to judge us. And that might not be a popular concept in 2020 about, uh, we have people that are, are uh, arguing for people to be let out of prison. Cause we're like, they're like, well, prisons don't exist to punish people. They're there to reform people. I'm like, no, I, I would say at one time prison, the idea was that you would pay your debt to society. Now you might want to argue about how severe that might need to be and whether people were unfairly done or not. It's, you know, immaterial. God never makes mistakes. His judgment is always righteous and pure. He never, uh, uh, he never screws up. And so, uh, my friend, I don't know where you're at in your life, but if you are in rebellion against God and you are harboring sin, believer or non-believer, you are opening yourself up to God, allowing that area to be increased to where you experience, you're blessed with more of your sin to where it will destroy you like that. And maybe even a more severe judgment than that. Yeah. Now, just as a quick thing, and, and you know, this is, we're recording this, and tomorrow's Easter, and so I, I, as judgment is a very real thing, remember that God provided a way uh, for those of, for all of us to have a restored relationship with him. Um, and I don't know where you guys are at, if some of you guys are unbelievers or not, but realize that God, in, in sending his son to die, uh, and, and that's what we often think about on Friday, mm, but Sunday he arose, he proved that he had broken the power of sin, that, that we can amen. have true and everlasting life with God. And so even as we talk about judgment, God's big thing, even with the harshest of judgment, he's yes, trying to, to repent and turn to him. Turn yes, you're right, man. Mm-hmm. And so as we think about Easter, and, and I, I think we should think about Easter all, all year, but especially as we're uh, coming up to that, realize that God is calling us to a relationship with him, but he's not going to force it. He, he's giving you that option. Um, but one day, no matter how you choose in this life, amen. every knee will bow. No, absolutely. Amen. Matt, you want to close this in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you at the end of this podcast. We uh, ask that as we continue to reflect upon uh, this passage in Genesis, which I don't know if Adrian and I realized how much we could really dig into this passage, but it's amazing uh, what your word can do. We ask that this time has been a blessing to those that have been listening in, uh, that uh, you would use this to help them in their relationship with you, uh, even if it's as, as something as simple of a little rock in their relationship or something as huge as beginning it. Um, I do pray that as we uh, continue to reflect upon the current climate and the, the virus that uh, we ultimately know that you have allowed it and therefore that good will come out of it, uh, that hopefully it will draw people closer to you and that people would seek you during this crisis. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Biblioscola. We hope you continue to express the desire to know more of God and his word. 
Please leave a comment if you have any questions on the discussion in this episode. Our desire is to educate and not sow confusion. This is a production of the Prattsburg Baptist Church and the Austinburg Baptist Church. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you.